welcome to the Edinburgh International Conference Centre on August the 18th, 2012 for Amnesty International presents No Pressure to be Funny, created by Alistair Barry and Nick Revel and podcasting on the British Comedy Guide. To start the show, we must welcome your host, a man with a hugely popular radio show in London, which is just the kind of introduction that really impresses an Edinburgh audience in August. Please welcome Mr. James O'Brien. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome to Amnesty International Presents No Pressure to be Funny, coming to you live from the Edinburgh Festival. Unless, of course, you are listening to the podcast, in which case we're clearly not live anymore and can probably still be found in the bar. It's, it's a pleasure to be here uh, at the EICC in Edinburgh's West End, not far, of course, from the Meadows, or as Michael Gove might call them, the Availables, Because in the afterglow of a hugely successful Olympic Games, the government has decided to sell off more playing fields, leaving the plans for the development of sport in schools without a legacy to stand on. (laughs) Who, Who says the pun has no place in modern satire? The Olympics, of course, were considered a great success. The main sponsors were McDonald's, Budweiser and Coca-Cola, the three key ingredients in any top athlete's diet. (laughs) I also noticed one of the other sponsors was Dow Chemicals and Union Carbide, who, uh, I hope you'll remember, were responsible in 1984 for the terrible Bhopal disaster in India. So, I guess Union Carbide sponsoring the Olympics finally explains why the Olympic mascots were one-eyed mutants. (laughs) Here... In Scotland, cannabis plants worth up to £750,000 were seized in East Dumbartonshire on Thursday. Police are worried that this may have further ramifications for the well-being of many fringe performers, (laughs) not to mention a number of of end-of-festival parties. The housing minister, Grant Shapps, said yesterday that over half London's rough sleepers were non-UK citizens, and he's working with foreign embassies to reconnect them home. (laughs) How can you send home people who are homeless? It's it's impossible, simply on a linguistic level, unless, unless, of course, home here means abroad. But that would mean a politician was using a word to mean its exact opposite. And that's... Uh... Oh. But that is, of course, the real British Olympic opening ceremony legacy, isn't it? Look at us, world! We are British! We are creative, artistic, compassionate, inclusive. Now fuck off! In America, Mitt Romney has announced Paul Ryan as his running mate for the presidency uh, in a move being touted in musical circles as a half-time warp. This means he's managed to step to the right, but with absolutely no jump to the left. Julian Assange has been granted asylum by Ecuador, where apparently a rape charge is now considered a political offence. 
Assange's main problem, of course, is getting across London from the embassy to the airport without getting arrested. His first plan, apparently, was simply to do it by waving an Olympic medal at the police. But now, apparently, he's going to overeat heavily and attempt to disguise himself as Boris Johnson. (laughs) You can see it. In Hungary, a leading member of the right-wing anti-Semitic Jobbik party has been expelled for being Jewish which kind of works without a punchline, I feel. (laughs) And now, as this is my first ever trip to Edinburgh, I'm allowed to do a joke about the trams. (laughs) Sadly, I don't have one. I'm having one written, but it's way over schedule. (laughs) And clearly not worth the money when it gets here. Thank you very much. Time to meet our guests, I think. Our our first panellist this afternoon is a comedian, actor, author, producer and director whose film The Aristocrats contained numerous versions of the same joke told by different comedians. So, a bit like a Peter Kay box set. (laughs) But with different comedians. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Paul Provenza. Joining, joining him is a comedian, activist and no-pressure regular who has just won a Fringe First and a Herald Angel Award for his show, Bravo Figaro, to which we say, Bravo, Mark Thomas. Yes. I was told to sit here. I'm sorry, Paul. It's not that I don't like you. <laughs> Welcome, Mark. But ne- he does. Next up, a comedian described last year by the Scotsman's Kate Copstick as gloriously dark and painfully funny, which used up nearly all of that reviewer's positive adjectives for the entire <laughs> festival. <laughs> Please welcome Alberta's finest, Dana Alexander. So an American, a Canadian, and a Londoner. Finally, for those of you worried that the Scottish demographic was a little under-represented this afternoon, it is a huge pleasure to welcome a man whose former jobs, according to Wikipedia, include grape picker, swineherd, taxman, alcohol researcher, hi-fi journalist, college secretary, and punk musician. Apparently, he has also written the odd book. Please welcome Ian Rankin. Welcome, panel. We will kick off now with some music from a no-pressure regular whose festival show, Vivo Gribostania, sees him imagining himself as an independent republic. (laughs) Alex Salmond is thought to be a fan. (laughs) Please welcome to the stage, Steve Gribbin. Thank you very much. Um, I'm now going to perform a a hip-hop song for you. I know I don't look like I enjoy hip-hop. I like a bit of conscious hip-hop. I'm not so fond of the gangster rap. Um, but uh, there was a fantastic programme on Radio 4 quite recently talking about Chinese hip-hop. And I don't know if anyone heard it. It had the, the leading rapper in China and they translated it as it went along. 
It was fabulous. It sort of went, I want to study abroad. But my mother wants me to get a job at home. This is causing discord in the domestic environment. You've got to love Chinese hip-hop, haven't you? Um, Towards the end of his life, um, Osama bin Laden um, realised that Al-Qaeda was losing the 18 to 35 demographic. So important to them because they buy a lot of their trainers. And um, he wanted to reach out to them. So I present to you tonight, um, this afternoon, I mean, uh, the world's first fundamentalist Islamic hip-hop song uh, brought to you by a fantastic group called the Slack-Eyed Jihadis uh, featuring their guest rapper, Kanye Hate the West. So uh, (laughs) this one goes something like this. Check out our lyrics, they're translated from Egyptian. Check this inscription, our rhymes are really bitchin'. Coming at you like a set of hieroglyphics. Mindset medieval and our views on sex horrific. We are the fundamentalist Islamic rappers. We kill all homosexuals, adulterers and slappers. Unmarried sex, then you be dead. Our penal code is harsh, you end up really giving head. I got 99 problems, but the burqa ain't one. Where is the hate in our universal worldwide caliphate? Come on and join our dance. Just try on this ticking pair of underpants. They're called die fronts. Girl, I am the baddest. I'm a jihadist Of all the lonely young men in the world I am the saddest I've never had a girlfriend To stroke my cock I sit here in my lonely room And fiddle with my laptop I'm so alone My throbbing bone A suicide bombing's the only way That I'll get blown And now some guest scratching From our guest rapper All the way from the UK Abu Hamza In New York New York Flying lessons in New York God said it is wrong to kill That is my conception But anyone who disagrees with me is an exception Apostates and infidels You are less than human Our worldview's even more depressing Than Mr. Gary Newman In cars In cars Don't you wish your girlfriend had a beard like me? Now in fundamentalist Islam, music is very wrong And that is why we're going to kill the singer of this song Peace Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Gribbin And now We just wanted to say that Ian and I were just going The signer earned her money on that That, that, was, that was the first time you heard it as well. Yes. <laughs> Can I just point out, we don't know if any of it was right. This is true. Mary had a little lamb, I think, was what was actually... <laughs> let's, um, let's invite onto the stage now for our regular devil's advocate spot to propose the motion that the devil's advocate believes that the Scots really enjoy having their capital city invaded every August. Ladies and gentlemen... Alistair Barry.
thank you very much. Ah, tag teaming. Okay. Uh, yes, the devil's advocate believes that the Scots enjoy having their capital city invaded every August. Yep. Because the Scots love being told what they think in this accent. Especially when it uses the word invaded. I like to begin all my monologues by alienating a significant part of the audience, uh, mainly because it might be edgy and I could get a BBC Three series out of it. I feel I should mention at this point that Alistair is a Scottish name. Two of my grandparents were from Glasgow and Skye, and the other two were called McNeil. Although I will stop going on about this now before you think I'm American and try and take me to the Royal Mile to sell me something authentic. There is some evidence that not all Edinburgh residents are fans of the festival. Only this week, a shoebox-sized rock fell from the castle, damaging two vehicles and narrowly missing a student theatre company, two living statues and a unicyclist. (laughs) No one was hurt in the incident, apart from the students who are still recovering from a bad review in The Scotsman. (laughs) However, in the main, it always feels as though... Local residents welcome the festival with open arms, in many cases actually leaving the city to give performers a little extra space. (laughs) There may be a tiny increase in rents for the month, but how else do you expect the owner of a miniature bedsit in Leith to pay for a trip to Barbados without letting the Lithuanian nose flute orchestra sleep in one of their cupboards? (laughs) Speaking personally, if I don't come to the festival, I'd just like to spend August in my shower ripping up tenors to replicate the effect. But these are familiar and possibly slightly tired jests. The Edinburgh Festival is the largest of its kind in the world, and Scotland has always attracted visitors from all over the world. It is hardly their fault if this year a lot of them appear to have come for the university places. (laughs) Edinburgh remains rightly proud of its festival, even if, sometimes understandably, it does tend to view it as an irritating eternal adolescent who treats the place like a hotel, gets far drunker than it should, and makes a hell of a mess everywhere while complaining that no one understands it. Whether the rest of Scotland enjoys having its capital city invaded is not a matter that I am really qualified to speak on, although that doesn't normally stop me. I suspect that there are mixed feelings of both pride and jealousy combined with the relief that it doesn't happen to them. Having said that, if Aberdeen is upset that it can't see torch singers juggling acrobats while someone tells jokes to the backing of an out-of-tune ukulele at three in the morning, it's doing a very good job of hiding it. If it is an invasion, the Edinburgh Festival seems generally to be a very friendly one on both sides of the equation, something for which everyone should be profoundly grateful. To borrow a word perhaps overused as the direct result of a certain film, it does seem to represent a sense of freedom in the best sense of the word, which is something we might all celebrate right now. Ladies and gentlemen, Alistair Barry. Thank you, Alistair. With... um, with matters Scottish, then, at the, at the top of the agenda as I turn towards the panel, I, I wonder if anyone can guess who I'm likely to go to first. <laughs> Ian Rankin fulfilling stereotypes there before we've even, before we've even started. <laughs> Other beers are available. <laughs> is, is, there, I, is there an exodus to, to, the, to the locals? The first thing I ever read about you was in the blurb at the beginning of your first novel, and it said Ian Rankin is a resident of the Kingdom of Fife, which I had to look up, because when your first novel came out, Wikipedia didn't exist. And um, it, was a, it was an education, but it speaks of a certain patriotic pride. Does the Edinburgh Festival fulfil that pride, or is it, an, is it a complete sort of adjunct? Is it a freakish 
month. Um, it, it's one of these things that I think it, it turns the city into a kind of Jekyll and Hyde figure, which of course is, is only apt since the author of Jekyll and Hyde was born and brought up here. Um, that it's, you know, it's a place where you still can find peace and quiet if you want it. There's still lots of parts of Edinburgh where there is no festival, there is no fringe, and you can go for a nice long walk and not have a flyer thrust into your hand. Um, on the other hand, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a great thrill about trying to walk up and down a Royal Mile without accepting a flyer from somebody. Um, you know, prizes are given at the end if you manage to go the whole mile without actually accepting one from a way-faced um, Oxbridge graduate. Um, I think you should do what the scouts should do, is just have a waste paper collection point at both ends of the Royal Mile. And so you could just cut out all that kind of uh, the, the, the recycling thing. You just have, you, they'd, they'd have it cu- covered completely. I actually think, really, all you need is flyers at one end, and if everybody just passed theirs on... Okay. You get a sort of self-sustaining ecosystem. That would, that would be... <laughs> do you... Do you, do you you don't hand out your own flyers anymore, Mark Thomas, do you? A, a man I'm of shocked your... you even asked, darling. Well, I just... <laughs> I, right, I so see, I, I hand s- out my own flyers. I have a man who deals with the people who hands <laughs> out the flyers. <laughs> have your people flyer my people. They, they actually asked me to a uh, flyer this year, and uh, it was kind of shocking. I'm like, well, I'm going to flyer when you, they help me write friggin' jokes. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes. No, I, do, I, I do have to agree with Ian that uh, I think the, the, this whole line of questioning, sir, mm. smacks of the unbelievable solipsism that is the Edinburgh Fringe. Wow. Most of Edinburgh doesn't even know it's here. The, the, it's the, very easy to avoid it. There's a whole world out there. I have to say, I was just, uh, I've just done a, a book reading at a place called Traquia, which is in uh, the borders, which is rather lovely. And uh, there's a nice chap who drove me in and out. And he ca- as he came to pick us up from the centre of Edinburgh, he goes, oh, look at the posters. And it was as if... <laughs> And it was one of those moments where you just wanted to go, wait till you see the electric lights. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's a very different city, of course, d- during the festival. I, 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 I don't know, Dana, you, you came for the first time last year. I did, yeah. Have you ever been to Edinburgh when the festival is not on? Yeah. (laughs) A drunk stag at uh, the highlights. It wasn't good. No. No. It's a bit of an anti... No offence, Ian, but it is a bit of an anti-climax. If you're baptised in the the Edinburgh ways during the festival... I I, I did a show here 20 years ago. It was the first time I'd been to the city. And then I came back the following January, and all the promiscuity and and debauchery and all the fun stuff... Who books that gig? ...wasn't there. I think it had moved down to Leith. Is that, is that, is it, it's, it's a grey city when well, the festival... Well, you know, I, um, uh, I decided one year that it was crazy to pack up at the end of the festival and go to the airport and deal with the same rigmarole just trying to get home. So I said, I'm going to spend like four or five days at the festival to see Edinburgh because it's a beautiful city. I don't get to appreciate it when I'm here. It was like some sort of post-apocalyptic It was. When that film. cow comes down, that's what you want to Unbelievable. In like 18 hours, it's as if it never happened. <laughs> it does be, and don't you think, it does be outside the festival, it comes the city of John Knox. Oh, oh not quite. I mean, there's, this, there's a fair amount going on, but I mean, we do have this com- you know, perennial complaint that not enough acts, you know, not just comedy, but, but music and, and theatre and everything else, don't come to Edinburgh except yeah. in August because they know there's a ready market, there's... You know, a much readier market than coming to what is a kind of small city to the north, you know, far to the north of London um, or anywhere Although else. Although the stand has done amazing. They keep stuff going. They keep stuff doing um, venues like the Jazz Bar. You know, every day you can see live music there. But 
you know, there are guys I, I pay six quid to see at the jazz bar during August who I can see for free on a Tuesday night in January at the jazz bar. <laughs> and if I go to see them free... That's be seasonal 12. employment. But, no, but you're not so what you're basically saying is, but, basically but you're be, saying, fuck them. But, no, but, <laughs> yeah, but there, there will be 12 people in the room in January, and they'll be packed out at six quid, but you can see them for free. And it's, just, it's weird. It's like Edinburgh, even Edinburgh people don't go unless it's August. It's like that is the, kind of, that is the Mr. Hyde gets to come out and play. This is infectiousness, I suppose. As, a, as an international performer, Dana, how big a deal is it? Because obviously British people, not, not just Scots, but all of us like to think that it is a jewel in the crown of the international comedy world. Uh, is, it, is it a particularly shiny jewel? <laughs> I know you'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> The way, is, it, is it a particular shiny How tool? shiny is it? Well, of, course, well, of course. You're just taking a piss, aren't you? <laughs> I am not taking a piss. <laughs> you no, it was exciting. It was exciting. Just... I was a little overwhelmed. Like when I came, I, I'd never been reviewed or anything like that before, and everybody kept telling me I didn't look like my poster and I wanted to cry and all of that well, stuff. How, why would you cry? I mean, maybe that was a compliment. Maybe you look rubbish in your poster. <laughs> why, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you little shiny jewel, you. Paul. Paul, it, it is. I mean, you, you've, I, I could still be reading your introduction, such as the diversity and, and, and length of your, your CV. Yeah, for, what that for means a, is I can't really hold a job. Well, actor, author, producer, director, the aristocrats went around I the world. I also do lighthouse work. So, <laughs> why do you come here now, at this point in your career? Um, I come here actually for the experience of it. Um, uh, you know, we try and do things in such a way where it's not going to cost us too much money. <laughs> but um, it's a great environment to experiment and play. And creatively, I think it's a fantastic place. I love the fact that it is quote unquote uncurated. Although, um, you know, obviously the change in the uh, comedy element of the fringe is really sort of uh, depressing. But um, we can get into that later if... Uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's, but uh, the point is, <laughs> the point is, the audiences are great, the vibe is great, and it is very much what you make of it. And, and you do, when you're doing an hour a night for 28 nights in a row, it's, um, it's boot camp, and it re that's a really, really great thing to do. And so creatively, I find it really invigorating and, and, and uh, just cool on that end. Uh, presumably, Mark, you, you would echo most of that? Because you, you, your show this year is uh, garnering all sorts of plaudits and, and uh, headlines, astonishing Yeah, reviews. they're carrying me around the city on their shoulders uh, next uh, week. <laughs> at awards. Does it, does it mean something in Edinburgh to get that sort of reception, different from what it would mean anywhere else or not? Um, I think what the nice thing about coming to the Edinburgh Festival is the fact that it gives you a place to go each year where you have to have new material, you have to have new ideas, and you have to get it together so it's right and ready. And that's brilliant to actually have that as part of your calendar. And what's brilliant about coming up here, and I know there's been arguments about people going, oh, is the Fringe sort of like just swamped up by commercialism? Is it now taken over by too many comics? Yes. I've seen some of the most... No, it's not. You're completely wrong. I've seen some of the most exciting avant-garde stuff in the past two weeks. I saw one performance of a Belgian performer who's 18, and all she did was write her name and uh, how she felt about capitalism on a blackboard for 50 minutes, and it was one of the most exciting performances I've ever seen. I don't That's get out much, exciting to British people. Being, <laughs> it's not exciting. Well, no, it, you know, it's, it's performance art, and it's, it's just yeah. really exciting. How was her handwriting? It was, was very, very show. clear and precise. Didn't have For the usual hour. Flemish slant. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. 
She was absolutely amazing. But, I, you know, there's an opera on that I saw over at the Summer Hall. Oh, there's no, great there's venue. no question. There's loads of really there's no interesting question stuff. There's great work here. But what's happened also is the economics have changed for lesser-known acts and acts that don't have support behind them. You know, it used to be a, a much lower-risk thing to come up here, and you'd get a decent audience. But, I mean, really, what you have now is you have, uh, uh, you know, there's 30 nights in a 1,000-seater that are booked with people who could sell a 1,000 seats any time they came mm. to Edinburgh. No. Yeah. And all it is is just a, all it is is just a, um, you know, a commercial no, decision. No, I agree. There's a lot of people... And, but, more, but it's very important to make this clear distinction. It's not anything against their success. It's just that it's at the expense of everybody else who needs it. I mean, that's 30,000 seats I, you, you, over the course of the festival that are taken away from some of the brilliant artists that you found that are also, struggling to pay their also, way. you get a whole load of people who run venues who are charging extortionate rates. Yeah, I was talking to somebody the other day who was getting paid, who was having to pay 26 grand for three weeks at the assembly rooms. That's and a pretty if he good doesn't deal, turn up, that's, that's what he has to pay. If he doesn't turn up, boom, he has to pay 26 grand. I don't know how you can pay those kind of prices. Like, when I came into my venue last year, I could see my breath in the hallways. So I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> Paul, Something Paul. started dripping on my head during my show. I'm like, how much is this costing? <laughs> <laughs> what is this building during the year? It's condemned. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> and, you know, you that's, all, that's all part of, I, no, that's all part of the, the risk-reward thing is all that, that sort of stuff. But, you know, as time has gone on, it's just become... It's, Become a major financial decision to come and play are you, creatively. Paul, are you, are you politely suggesting that an actor like Mark Thomas shouldn't be coming to Edinburgh? No, no. Mark Thomas is actually he's a, all right. He, is he, he's, yes, he's, absolutely. He's, but no, there's a big difference <laughs> because Mark Thomas, Mark Thomas, <laughs> Mark Thomas buses his audiences in <laughs> from homeless shelters and blood donations. Stay. Staying and up. indeed, leftovers from people who've seen your films. <laughs> <laughs> so what you see again, that self-perpetuating <laughs> ecosystem. This sort of idea, this international tension, I think we should uh, sustain slightly by turning our attention now, Ian Rankin, to the question of Scottish independence. Oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were being a bit left out. Has it? Do, do, do you feel? That it's shifted in the um, in the aftermath of the Olympics. Um, there's actually a, a good piece in uh, in the Guardian today um, uh, about how maybe the the uh, no campaign, which are the people who want the UK to remain in the UK and not have Scotland split, uh, that seems like a very negative name. They should just call themselves Team GB, yeah. which I think is a is a very would be a very shrewd move. It's probably too late for them to do it. Although then, if you've got Team GB, you can suddenly see them marching down the Royal Mile, headed by Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown. You go, it doesn't really, with the kind of shorts and the striped <laughs> uh, vests with numbers on. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, don't go there. Don't go there. Um, no, I mean, has it shifted? It seems to have. I mean, there is a kind of sense that a lot of these athletes were wrapped in the Union Jack. Not only were they wrapped in the Union Jack, but they said, we don't see, you know, why being Scottish means we can't be British. Chris Hoy, in particular, was, was yeah, quite yeah, but he wasn't he wasn't the only one. Um, but then come the Commonwealth Games in a couple of years, which handily are placed just before the uh, the vote, uh, he'll be there for for Team Scotland, and he'll be wrapped in a salt tire. So this might be a very short term effect. If you had to call it at this point in in proceedings, what would you? If say? you look at the polling, you would say it's going to be uh, no to independence. Um, I think something will be thrashed out in between times. I think something like Devo Max will be put on the table without it being called Devo Max. What do you want, personally, as a resident of the Kingdom of Fife? 
Uh, I'm not a resident of the Kingdom. I was born and brought up in the Kingdom of Fife. Um, I'm a resident of Edinburgh. I have been for many, many years. Um, Your heart is still in the Kingdom. Yeah, but you know, I'm, st- I'm a Fifer first, and then an Edinburgh person second, and then uh, I guess a Scottish person, then a British person. Uh, you know, it doesn't really bother me. It's a big to do at the book festival just now because there's a, an international writers' conference on, which is replicating the one in 1962, which was full of spats and madness. Um, and this one seems to be going the same way because James Kelman has said he won't take part because it's under the aegis of the British Council. Um, and I think that's, Kenny, that's point scoring. I think there's also, uh, identity is a really lovely and complex thing, and how we identify ourselves isn't just about, are we British, are we Scottish? When people ask me where I come from, I, I make a point, I automatically say South London. It's not London, yeah. it's South London. It's I, very, very specific. If I could actually say Balham and get away with it, I would. <laughs> You know, because identity is very much about where we live, where we're born, how we see ourselves in relation to that. I wish there was somewhere that I could go on this planet where someone would not ask me, where are you from? Where are you? There's nowhere I can go. I yeah, don't, don't ask me that. It's a really complicated thing. It's uh, like, uh, you know, I think it feels to me just like an extension of, uh, of tribalism. Just somehow we keep bringing our tribe in smaller and smaller and smaller because I think our natural inclination is to have our sort of tight-knit little well, community. As, as a kind of anarchist at heart, I would be quite happy if my street declared independence. <laughs> UDI. Yeah. Yeah. You get a nice little Ealing comedy out of it. Well. Yes, I it would. I was I was having a cup of tea this when morning you, with, when a, with a when your street has uh, a standing army at the end go. of the month. Um, I was having a cup, a cup of tea this morning with Elif Shafak, the the Turkish writer, and she has written very well about how she feels writers, maybe all artists, but writers specifically in her case, always need to be standing on the threshold. It's the best place for us is on the threshold, neither there nor there, but somewhere in between. Um, and so the question of cultural and national identity for her is quite complex as well. But I thought, that's nice. I like that idea that I'm, I'm in neither one camp nor the other. I'm kind of still thinking about it and still mulling it over and free to travel between any of these places. Well, that's an interesting thing that happened in the States, with, which but, but get a lot of, there's a lot of jokes about it here, but, you know, the idea of Italian-American, Irish-American, African-American in the States, it's sort of, it's kind of been held up as kind of weird here, but it's exactly that. It's, it's to address or somehow you get your head around that kind I, of a notion. It doesn't even exist. On, in Canada, I find everybody, like, I'm such a mutt, like, I'm half Jamaican, then a quarter Irish, or sorry, an eighth Irish, an eighth Italian guy in there. Like, everybody's a mutt where I come from. So after a while, it's like, what do you call yourself? You're just Canadian, I guess. It's, yeah. a, it's a, a timely moment, perhaps, to... I, I was going to say... Oh, God, no, just say of course, it's obviously th- not a timely my, what, moment. No, no, my one thing <laughs> that I'd add on this yeah. is the fact that actually... Uh, a lot of English folk are just kind of like, ah, oh, well, you know, pfft, who cares which way Scotland goes? It's up to them, which is, you know, in, in many ways, it's got a lot to be said. It's not our decision; it's yeah. Scottish folks' decision. I'll tell you what I think will happen. I think Scotland will eventually become independent. Scotland will become independent, and what that will mean is Northern Ireland start to panic, right? Southern Ireland, uh, Ireland will suddenly go, right, okay, we've got a chance now. We've got a foot in the door. We're going to go for the north. We'll have that. So all the loyalists are going to come over here. So that's your first problem. You've got a mass influx of bowler-hatted folk singing sash songs, right? Then, so Ireland, right, becomes independent. Northern Ireland's gone. Boom, it's part of Ireland. Then Wales is just stuck to England. And the Welsh are just going, really? Really? No, thank you. So they split off. England's left by itself. So now we've got, right, Ireland, Scotland, Wales and, and England. And Scotland, Wales and Ireland will go, why don't we get together? <laughs> And, and I think I think the north of England and Yorkshire would be with us. Yeah, I know, <laughs> do you know. I, I, 
just and a couple, think, couple of new stands on the map. And I think you'll find South London will tactically join you. I, I, yes, I think we'll be left the Independent Republic of Balham. We, um... It's a nice moment, in fact, to, to welcome to the stage our, our very own resident stand-up historian. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Revel. Right then. So, in 1972, the, the story's apocryphal, but it definitely happened. It was either Ken, Henry Kissinger or, or Richard Nixon who was talking to the Chinese foreign minister, Chou Enlai, uh, and they asked him... Uh, what he thought the main effects of the French Revolution were. And Cho Enlai said, it's still too early to tell. Uh, In 1943, Woody Guthrie, the big daddy of all protest singers, wrote a slogan on his guitar, This Machine Kills Fascists. He got that slogan from the Republican Air Force during the Spanish Civil War, who used to ride it on the side of their planes. Admittedly, that was probably only... Uh, out there for about six weeks before they were shot down by the better-paid, better-equipped fascist forces, but it doesn't matter. It's the thought that counts. Talking of thought, in 1938, Bertolt Brecht wrote in a poem, however thick the armour, every tank has the same weak point, the mind of the driver. Where's this monologue going? It's still too early to tell. (laughs) At the Battle of Cable Street in London in 1938, when Mosley's black shirts were stopped from marching through the Jewish East End by a mass turnout of anti-fascists, those anti-fascists were chanting a slogan they also took from the Spanish Civil War. No passeran, they shall not pass. <clears throat> and that was the slogan on Natasha Tolokhanikova's T-shirt yesterday when she and other members of Pussy Riot got two-year sentence for saying that Vladimir Putin is an autocrat thug who doesn't allow free speech. Putin said it wasn't true, and to prove it, he banged them up for saying so. I say, I say he jailed them, he, he has people to do it for him. That's one of the perks of being an autocrat. Um, in this case, it was the Russian Orthodox Church. And the church said that God himself was upset with Pussy Riot because they protested in a cathedral. How do the priests know this? Because God told one of them personally in a vision. Now, I'm not doubting the truth of that. Of course I'm not. And and given that most Russian Orthodox priests, certainly at senior level, are ex-KGB members, they probably got God to talk by stringing him up by his bollocks. (laughs) (laughs) But the point is, it does show one thing. God wasn't really paying attention when his son was down here last time, uh, or he might have noticed Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple, which, incidentally, was a far less peaceful protest than pussy riots. And I'm not here to pour scorn on religious institutions, but I will just mention this. The head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, ex-KGB, also a billionaire, four times over, who made his money by controlling a bank, selling oil, and importing vodka and tobacco, and cornering the market because his company doesn't pay tax because it was a religious charity before he moved into the stock market and developing a huge property portfolio, including a villa in Switzerland. If you don't believe me, Google him, there's more. I mean, this is as if James Bond became Archbishop of Canterbury and ran a chain of off-licenses in his spare time. It's going to be a short sermon this morning, dearly beloved. I've got to supervise stock-taking in the Wembley Mega Warehouse and then get a jet ski to Bermuda to shoot someone in the head. Then this evening I've got to get back to London, pick up the Queen and drop her out of a helicopter. So call me a cab now and get the choir on early. It's also my day for the school run. So, 
What are the effects of the Pussy Riot trial? It's still too early to tell. But my guess is some people might come to find a church run by billionaire tobacco-dealing ex-secret policemen, oil trader bankers, marginally more offensive to God than three women singing about freedom in a church. I also reckon when you see demonstrators holding banners saying, blessed are the merciful, being beaten up by security guards outside a courthouse, things are going to change. A few minds are going to change in the long run because the world is watching now and one thing is clear. Battle lines are being drawn. On the one side, the ex-KGB president, the handful of his friends who own the country and two million secret policemen being terrified into a massive overreaction by the enemy. Three young women with guitars and colourful carvers. I didn't see any slogan on Pussy Rats guitars, but I know for fuck's certain what it said. Nick Revel, ladies and gentlemen. We should perhaps thank the uh, various tools of international oppression for arranging the world in such a way (laughs) to provide a comedy current affairs discussion panel show operating under the auspices of Amnesty International on this day with such rich material. We'll, We'll begin with Pussy Riot, or as they're currently known on Californian television, the Russian punk band with the name Too Profane to Repeat on Breakfast TV. Um, Dana, is, is the world watching? I, I was watching. <laughs> Just the word, pussy riot. You know you're going to read about that. <laughs> yes. And you know the, you, we know the reason why they're locked up. It's not because uh, they went into church and they did all this. It's because they're called pussy riot. Do you know what I mean? If they were called the defenders of democracy, they wouldn't be in jail right now. I don't think. Oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> They perhaps wouldn't be getting quite the coverage that they're getting if they Fair had a enough, different yeah. name, do you think, Paul? Uh, that's probably true, but that is just a testament to the brilliance of their agitprop. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, they certainly knew how to do exactly what they did. And a punk band in Russia protesting against the you know, government is generally not something that ends up on the front pages around the world until you call a pussy riot and do something outrageous. They're brilliant. They're brilliant. If you look at it as just a piece of satire, it's absolutely brilliant and one of the more important things that's happened recently. That's how I feel about them. I think they're brilliant. Mark? I I agree. I think they're one of the most important cultural phenomena in terms of uh, actually affecting change and protest that's happened in ages. And also it's brilliant to see Hugh Edwards say the word pussy. (laughs) (laughs) Also good. It is. So good good week to be a newsreader. I mean, it is a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, the the T-shirts saying free pussy riot are going to be difficult for many people. Um, I think we can all agree, though, that the one thing we don't want to happen as a result of this is for Bono to get involved. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I do have to to say that my my first thought on on reading this story was I thought they went into a church wearing masks and, and the police got them. They must have some really good detectives in Moscow. <laughs> they yes. masked intruders in a church, and they find them. They wouldn't get them here even with CCTV. They'd be gone. I also think there's a, an interesting aspect that uh, I've just been thinking about. I don't really know what to think about it, but um, I love the fact there's such a feminist streak through it that is uh, almost transcended by the bigger picture of it, which is human. Uh, I think it's pretty great that it's women who are doing this. Uh, I just think it operates on another level. I, I also think if you're going to uh, get done for hooliganism, at least set a fire. 
<laughs> so so for, Russian for you, Orthodox they weren't church. quite hardcore yeah, enough because they jail, didn't burn the church me. down. Yeah. Hey, let's go back to the pogroms. <laughs> but, you know, it's, also, it's also interesting, that uh, the rhetoric around it. You know, so much of what we're probably going to talk about today and talk about all the time, it's really just all rhetoric. And when you get right down to it, the absurdity of it and the, and the, and the sort of self-parody of it all is, is so evident. And um, the rhetoric around this, you know, people justify why they should go to jail and all this. And, and many of them, Russian citizens, it's just fascinating to me. It just, it just speaks to how... Wow, man, you scramble somebody's brain and it sticks, man, you know? Mm. It's like people can't even see through to... Don't you? There, there is... There is uh, I think part of it is people get a little bit worked up about the fact that it's in a church and that's the bit they get stuck on. That's true, and, and I'm, and, a, I'm and a big fan of blasphemy. Uh, well, uh, I am too. Fuck Jesus. And I think... the, the, the By the way, you know, it's not blasphemy unless you believe. <laughs> okay, for a minute, right? Is that right? Yeah. How could it be blasphemy if you don't, they don't even believe it? Well, I don't think that would carry much can't weight murder on, the sca- on the scaffold, as you were saying. So you no, can't, it's okay. you it's can't like murder your imaginary friend. That's a very good point. <laughs> a, but, Mark, you're quite right. A lot of, I mean, Nick, Nick Revel's been engaged in some fascinating exchanges with hardcore Russian reactionaries on Twitter right. uh, who really do seem to feel that the, that the protest's presence in, a, in the house of God was the offence, not the political... Not the political. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot, there is a lot of symbolism about that building as well, because didn't Uncle Joe Stalin knock it down, uh, uh, and then it had to be rebuilt afterwards? So I mean, is, there are a lot of kind of there are a lot of Christians in Russia for whom that means quite a lot. That building. Well, but then again, sure. that's 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 part of its its brilliant design, is because an institution is an institution is an institution, and they're all the same institution. Well, if it was a building that was knocked down by Joe Stalin, and then rebuilt, and has this enormous, therefore symbolic representation for people. How come the bloke who's in charge of it is ex-KGB? <laughs> and just out of interest, how do they square that one? Uh, hands up in the room, if you want to uh, <laughs> have a crack at that. Well, they don't square it, it, do they? Just, they I mean, just... it's, it's a shame there was no Ecuadorian embassy nearby. <laughs> they, could, they could just run in and take the masks off and run in there. The there, was, there was a lovely protest done in, uh, in South London, actually. Um, and... Uh, and it was outside, really? it was in South London, <laughs> oh, wow. and um, very near to my street. And <laughs> what it was, was there was a, a, a guy who was involved in a vulture fund, involved in these uh, making money out of selling international debt. And one of the trade unions turned up, out, and he went to church every Sunday, and one trade unions turned up with a camel and a big banner. And it's easier to get through a camel through a ne- either needle than it is for this bloke to get into heaven. I've just turned up outside the church. I'm just saying that's the standard we set in South London. And it's a shame you couldn't have done that in a church. That's all I'm saying. Well, if we'd taken the camel in, then I think we'd have been nicked. But the, I, I think there is that real thing. There is a thing that people get in the way and go, oh, well, it's in a church and therefore it's sacred. Actually, this is about freedom of expression, start and end. That's what it's about, and about Mm -hmm. people's right for freedom of expression. The fact that these young women did it in this way, which I think has captured the imagination of the world, whether the world is watching, I'm not sure, but certainly Mm. captured the imagination and done it in such a rebellious and democratic way that that actually everyone can join in. If you're a woman, you can all join in, you can put on the balaclava and you can join in, and I think that's absolutely fantastic. It also, I think, does a lot of good for the balaclava, which is usually associated yeah, with much more yeah. violent Yeah, no, I think you're protest. right. Uh, I think the I think, the balaclava, I think it's really the bal- did in for the balaclava I think in it's fashion the, sense. The balaclava <laughs> industry is behind all this, actually. 
<laughs> I just find it hilarious that using the word pussy was the catalyst to all of this. Just the word, do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, that, that, on a fundamental level, it's a, it's a big that's what you It's mean, very punk, it's that, very punk. That's what you mean by agitprop. I mean, the, yeah, the, exactly. in the purest sense, Mark Thomas, this must delight your anarchist heart. This is, this is performance art at its most powerful. Yeah, in and, fact, um, if, if it was on at the Traverse, I'd pay 14 50 you see? <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you would dodge the guest list for pussy, right? That's, that's, that's Hell yeah. Like, oh, wow, that's... One star, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and it's a mark of solidarity, since we know them so well, we will now all on the panel sing one of their songs. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'll do the guitar part, if that's all right. You know, I, I, I try and filter it through the American experience where, you know, freedom of speech is enshrined, and even with all the complexities around that, it's still uh, it's generally accepted that that includes odious speech. And... Um, uh, it's interesting because this is a government situation in, in Russia, whereas what's happened in America is most infringements of freedom of speech come from corporate America. Mm. So it's, it's a very interesting thing to see the sort of pure government versus expression thing play out on a national stage and, and sort of throw a light on exactly how it's been sidestepped in America. Can, can I flag really up one thing? We had, we had riots in, 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 in England uh, a year ago. Um, and there was a lot of stuff on Facebook and Twitter and that. People said, hey, let's go and riot. Mm. Um, I think a couple of young guys in Dundee got done for three years mm. for actually going online and saying, hey, let's all riot. There was no riot. Mm. They'd just gone online and said, hey, let's riot. Three years, not two years, three years, for something that didn't happen. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. There's a whole load of, of draconian laws that have come in. And, and actually, especially around sort of Twitter, the, the Twitter trial, over just over what can be said and what can't be said. Mm. You know, some bloke says, you know, the plane's not on time. God, get it together. I've got to blow up the airport. And security took it seriously. It's like, no, no, stop. So that was crazy. Well, but that actually, he won the court case. Yeah. I mean, it yes, was thrown yeah. out, which, is, which is very his, encouraging and he shocking. He lost his job. In uh, the process, true, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and he was dragged through court and found guilty before the appeal. Well, it turns out he works he works at the airport. So that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's people just get worried by the sacredness of the airport. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blaspheme. <laughs> it's it's kind of my church, actually. Now that I think about. It. Let's explore that a little further, actually, uh, the, the, because that was clearly, I think, to anyone with a fully functioning brain, that was crazy and it should never have come to court for the very simple reason that it was clearly intended to be a joke and nobody could have read that particular tweet and thought this constitutes a proper terrorist threat. The Facebook threat, actually different in that they were trying to start a riot. To in Dundee? Yeah, I know, I grant you. <laughs> how, how would they tell? How could you possibly tell? Isn't that usually just a, you know, like a, an exciting night out? Only you can say that on this panel, Ian. Only that. you can say that. tribalism. Think right? quickly, has <laughs> it got a Dundee gig coming up soon? <laughs> But the, um, I, I mean, a lot of examples recently of people having their collar felt by the long arm of the Lord just for being rude on yes. Twitter. M most yeah. notably, perhaps, the, the young, very troubled young man who, who sent a nasty tweet to Tom Daly, the diver, after he, he failed to perform particularly well in the first diving competition he was entered into. Well, Does it, that hang on a minute. He was in the finals for the Olympics. So well, it did no, quite well. No, 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 how in the hell have you cast me in the role of a Tom Daly <laughs> disliker? I love you that. hate him. You I know that. You said Tom to me Daly. backstage, you said that evil little oh, bronze God, git. You said that to me. You <laughs> said he's like the inside doll in the Russian collection. That's what you said. <laughs> I didn't say that. He said that. <laughs> With his speedos. But uh, yeah. should, the, should the police be getting involved in things like that, Dana, do you think? Is that... 
Yeah, you, I do. I mean, you know what it is? The it's, crime it's, of obnoxiousness. Well, maybe, maybe, not, maybe not to that extent, but I think what happens is uh, if they let it pass with a joke, then other people can veil, you know what I mean, something that's quite serious as a joke. You know what I mean? So there is a potential hands, danger. But you have now put in the hands of a government system the decision as to what is a joke and what isn't. Yes. Can I also say what you just said? Is, is, if I've got this right, you're saying they should actually have stopped the guy for the Twitter joke for about the airport. Because, yes. because they, they should have looked at that because obviously it could be true. Yes. So Twitter, the police m- monitoring Twitter, is the first line of defence against Al-Qaeda flying planes. <laughs> I, no, 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 no. Okay, the Twitter... I, I'm I just probably, trying to find no, out no, no, where no. the... Where well, probably, because in, in Arabic, you can't say a lot of stuff in 140 characters. <laughs> how, how do you know? Twitter instance, no, but I would say in the, the airline instance, yes, because I think there is a real threat. Paul, can you... Uh, I, I, I think to... that's absolutely insane. First of all, let's just look at it from a logical standpoint. If you want to know who's doing stuff, you let people communicate on Twitter, and then you go and see that one's a problem, that one's not a problem. Case closed. I am sick of all this retarded rhetoric. Everything is about making it easier for law enforcement, not respecting the rights of citizens. Yes. I, yeah, think, yeah. I think Paul's absolutely yeah. right. Because actually one of the great things about, uh, about the, 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 um, the, the Human Rights Convention is whenever I go on protests and, and police get less supportive than they might be, <laughs> it is always nice to just go, my right to protest is enshrined in law and your job is to protect it. Yes, and that seems to get lost amidst all the rhetoric. Hot, By the way, I just, can I just share one thing? This is great. You'll, you'll love this. That, that, Security. That, that, that's a rhetorical question. If you're wondering, I don't know whether that qualifies as retarded rhetoric. That was a you're wasting you, time right now. So, hey, I'm sorry. Carry on. Security edition, E-D-I-T-I-O-N dot com. It's phenomenal. Because I think the TSA is basically the SS with training wheels. So <laughs> you go to securityedition.com. They're little metal cards with the uh, Bill of Rights on them. The um, Fourth Amendment against illegal searches and seizures, highlighted in red, and it's fantastic. You just put that in your pocket when you go through the thing, and they take it out, and it sets off the, the detector, and they take it out. And if you're lucky, you can actually get to hear them say, "I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take away your rights." Uh, <laughs> hold that thought. Hold that thought. Our second musical guest this afternoon is a former Edinburgh Award nominee who is writing a new song every single day this festival from suggestions, appropriately enough, submitted on Twitter. Uh, Our suggestion of a song called Loretta's Introduction was sadly ignored, so we've had to write this one instead. Please welcome Loretta May. Hello everyone, can you hear me? I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding! Is that coming through, is that loud enough? Great, okay, hi. Uh, I'm here to sing you some song. Well, uh, Nick asked me to come and sing because I'm trying to be more political in my material. Um, don't laugh at that, James. I, uh, no, I am, I'm trying to be more like Bono, because um, Bono is amazing. I know you, you mocked him earlier, but he does all that work for charity and still finds time to visit all 17 of his houses. So I want to be more like him. So I'm, uh, I've written this song, and it's, uh, it's about how hard we're finding life, you know, because we're finding life hard at the moment, you know. People have described my political songs sort of like um, Sheryl Crow meets Jeremy Paxman, you know. <laughs> Although if they ever actually met, he'd probably give her a right hard time. (laughs) 
What do you mean every day is a winding road? It makes absolutely no sense. Your problem is that you lack strategy. You finding life hard? Yeah, I can tell. There are so many nasty things in life. shit that comes out of your dog's ass and yummy mommy sorry but my coffee is just as important no i won't let your giant off-road three-wheel push chair pass and i hate in the end call center yeah i said it i hate in the end call center but most of all i hate scottish call centers cause they think their accent is charming while that accent isn't calming I don't care how charming your accent is. I don't want no PPI. What the hell is PPI? And I hate that I'm sucked in by the latest fad in dieting. And I hate that I will cry in any film that Jennifer Aniston is in. And I wish that I was well read, but I reach for take a break instead. But you know what makes me lose it? What makes me scream so angrily? It's when Chris Evans goes on holiday and we get Richard Madeley. With your creepy tiny face And I know things are serious in Syria And Greece is fucked financially And I think that you'll agree If the Wi-Fi isn't free That's a crime against our humanity It's a little thanks No Ladies and gentlemen, Loretta Main. Thank you, Loretta. Let's continue the American theme. I, I, there's, there's, we'll actually maybe start with Julian Assange, actually, because although it is a, a Swedish, British, Australian story, it's, it's the threat of it becoming an American one, Paul Provenza, that seems to inform a lot of the objection to his current treatment. Yeah, boy, it's interesting. You know, I, I believe it was George Orwell uh, who said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And I think it's uh, just... Uh, am, I, am I right about that, George Orwell? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, you know my attorney, Mark <laughs> Thomas? You know, once again, I try Sorry, to... Sorry, I, I, I nodded off. <laughs> <laughs> 
The, um, the, 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 the women who've accused him of sexual assault, though, may also be telling the truth. Uh, it's less of a yeah. revolutionary act. Which yeah, but you, know, but, but, you know, the same thing, we've seen it happen where it was, you know, orchestrated unsuccessfully against Martin Luther King. I mean, we've seen this thing over and over again. And, you know, I know it sounds like movie stuff, but, but it's not. I mean, this kind of thing happens all the time. So um, you do believe it's a put-up job, then? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But isn't but, that why you then the go real, and the question? real point is, it does not seem out of the realm of likelihood that it could be. <laughs> I mean, it's not a crazy notion. It's not like it doesn't happen all the time. It's not like we haven't seen evidence of it uh, being, you know, executed elsewhere in different contexts. Um, but the bottom line, really, again, above all the rhetoric of the, of the, you know, actual. Minutia of the story is a situation where the truth is is um, you know jeopardizing this person's life, just telling the truth, just speaking the truth. And we all know that most of what's classified as national security isn't really national security; it's job security for people who don't want to be embarrassed in their uh, or, or, you know official positions. Uh, you know, there's just no question that we're lied to. There is no transparency. We have no idea what our governments are up to around you, the world. You can't. You. you, you. I mean, transparency, at risk of sounding like a Republican, can only go so far. You can't yes, it can it. only go so far, but I think it can go a lot further than it is. Okay. Mark, how is this case working for you? Do you know, I just, I, I genuinely don't know the truth of this. I, no one in this room actually does. But I just wish that all alleged rape, rape victims were treated with the same mm-hmm. amount of effort and energy as these people were. Agreed. Does does the fact that they are not actually add some weight to Paul's uh, concerns that, that, that there is something rather more sinister unfolding? I think there is. I think there is something sinister, which is very much that America wants to extradite Assange and they want to put him on uh, on trial there, and and he will go to a very dark room for a very long time, and, mm. and we will all be writing letters to get him out, and that's what will probably happen. But undoubtedly, he actually needs to answer those charges too, you know, because... In Sweden? He needs to answer those charges, yes. He needs to actually answer the fact that he's been accused of rape. And that's... We, you can't just treat this stuff lightly, you know, and that's an important, that's an important thing. There's a, there's the a big... That, but I'm, I, I personally, I find myself sort of caught on the horns of this dilemma, the fact he does need to answer these things, but also the fact that it, it's transparently obvious that... America is trying to get him out and they're going to punish him for WikiLeaks and that's what they want to do and Paul is right to a degree that uh, I spoke to um, Elena Kennedy the, the QC when, um, for Assange when he was uh, here oh still is here but you know um, technically sort of well, as far nearby, as we know but technically yes. on the foreign soil of possibly in Ecuador anyway the thing is she was saying very much that, that actually allegations of rape have been used before against civil rights activists and this is what, what Paul is saying. And we need to be aware of those. And she is right. We also, but, but it is balancing the fact that women so often get marginalised and ignored on these issues. And, you know, there was a stage in this country, uh, hopefully it's improved, where if you're a woman and you went to report rape, it was just like, really, really, yes. okay. And that's an unacceptable thing. But your, your, your earlier point, I think, is really, really profound, which is uh, why, aren't, why are not all rape allegations treated with the same degree of scrutiny and, and, uh, and effort. You're absolutely right. It's, and, and it does, I think, as you suggest, uh, James, uh, speak to, well, this is a special rape. 
Why, I, I don't know if anyone can answer this question, why is he more likely to be extradited from Sweden than Britain? Because You're right. It, well, <laughs> does Sweden have the same uh, the same restrictions on extraditing they, they from countries get, they with don't, death they don't penalty? Get, from an American perspective, they don't get any sweeter than the British extradition mm. arrangements with the United States, to, to the best well, of but my he knowledge. Is, but he is accused in the States of a treasonable offence, which yeah. is death penalty. I mean, I think uh, from what I've read, it would be actually harder for him to be extradited from Sweden than from the UK. It, it's a, it, I mean, a curiouser and curiouser, which yeah. is a slightly less... Profound and I mean, literary and, and reference than you were all well won. But a great <laughs> package of minutes. <laughs> but it is, I, did you understand, Ian? I, I mean, it's not a question I'd often ask in this sort of context, but it does seem that there's a, a lack of understanding and a, and a surfeit of strong opinion on this issue. Well, there's, there's, there's a lack of understanding as to why many things have happened. Why did he choose the Ecuadorian embassy? Um, why would they choose to keep him? Um, you know, of all the embassies he could have chosen. I, all just, the embassies in all the world. I, yes. You know, if I'm ever in a kind of traffic dispute now and the police come out, I'm just, I'm not asking for a lawyer, I'm asking for my nearest consular official um, to whisk me straight into a, to a consulate or embassy and so I don't have to answer the there, charges. There was a meeting, does, uh, does, a I mean, social encounter between <coughs> Assange, one of his supporters, and, and either the Ecuadorian president or the Ecuadorian ambassador. So it was yeah. pretty much circumstantial. It was a complete fluke. But I mean, to go back to something that, that, um, that, that uh, Mark said, he's got to answer the charges. I mean, he just has. Um, he, can't, he can't keep running away from them. There are women who've made allegations against him, and he's got to present himself, and he's got to... What would you sanction them? Well, I mean, he does, but, you know, it's, it's important to also recognise this is not a quick case of, you know, the average person being accused of this, hiring a solicitor and dealing with their case. This, you know, what's at stake here and the, and the machinations around his position in the world right now... Yes, but either and, that and whatever threats he presents or, or doesn't... Either that trumps the, char- the, the, the allegations that have made against him, there are no charges, or it doesn't. I think Ian and Mark are... Oh, I don't I think it, it trumps it. It just makes it a very, very elaborate and odd and confusing scenario I, for him to deal with. I don't think it helps by the fact that he's just odd. Yes. <laughs> he is just odd. He's, and, he's and, and it does, and I'm, and I'm being serious about this, I don't think it helps because people just look at him and just go, and, and people make up their mind one way or the other. Frankly, if you put on a banaclava, He'd be fine. I think he would stand a bit of in a church instead of the Ecuadorian embassy. There's something of the Malfoy family about him, isn't there? There is a... <laughs> I think that's probably part of the problem. I, I, actually, I actually think he looks like Anders Breivik. That, yes. There's a kind of family resemblance. There's, kind of there's a, a parlour game just, just coming to life at this point in, in proceedings. Dana, um, Dana, I'm conscious of, of marginalising you during this discussion. The, 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 the simple tension seems to be the left-right dichotomy has broken down in this country and, and we've on this panel, um, uh, not fallen into this trap. You you have to recognise that the way Bradley Manning has been treated, the guy that actually gave the documents to Assange, is shocking. It it is, by just about any standard, illegal. But it is also true that there are two women in Sweden who have levelled very serious allegations at him. Is it it a a sort of story you can get your head around, or or is it just... I think it's always a really tricky one when you're talking about rape. I mean, when you're talking about even the fact that these women have the courage to say anything, it's it's one of those things. I I wish I had a little bit more to say about it, but I mean, until we have all of the, uh, the facts, it's kind of... Can I just say that I, I, I do take issue with, and I know it's, it's almost impossible not to, but I, I really think it's important not to conflate these two issues. Do yeah. you? Yes, yeah. I do. There is no, no, my defense uh, of Julian Assange as, uh, as somebody who's done what he's done in terms of WikiLeaks does not s- suggest that I'm okay if he's a rapist. 
that those two things are completely different. Well, and, they are, and, 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 and I do believe that the way you're framing this is part of the problem, and it falls no. very neatly into a you know uh, a public re- an anti-public relations campaign. I, I understand against why you. S- I understand why you say that, but the question is hinging really, and the, and the issue is hinging really on what should happen to him next, and you can't address that question without yes. conflating the two yes. issues because it is it's, it's why America want to extradite him is the. Uh, the truth issue, the, the WikiLeaks issue, and why Sweden wants to get their hands on him is the sexual allegation issue. So I, 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 I understand your point, but this, I, this I, is I, an I robustly po- reject it. Th- this is an amnesty podcast, and it's worth just remembering that every one of the people in the, this scenario has human rights. Yes. Every single one of them. Assange has a right to a fair trial. Mm-hmm. Assange has a right not to be persecuted for the actions of whistleblowing. And those women have a right to be treated respectfully and with dignity and to have the crime investigated. Yeah. Okay. Do you believe it's at all... Do you believe... Um, um, it's do you believe it's at all possible for him to uh, have a legally viable um, fair trial, given that it's world stage? Where is he going to be able to be heard by a jury of his peers who aren't prejudiced against According him? According to Ian Dundee. <laughs> <laughs> very, um, very briefly, and, and, and I'll, I'll st- go through the panel one by one. I'll ask you to step into the shoes of the, of the Home Secretary. Uh, what would you do... Um, Paul Preventer, what would you do now? He's, he's holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy. He's, he's got asylum, which complicates the issue slightly. We have a, a, a law, the uh, Diplomatic and Consular Property Act 1987, I think, which came in after the Yvonne Fletcher shooting from the Libyan embassy. So you can bend that. We could go in and grab him, I suppose I'm asking. If I were in a position we? to make this kind of a decision, yeah. I would just quit. I'd just resign. I'd just go. I, I, <laughs> I lied on my CV. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, no, seriously. Well, you know, because we're, we're, we're in that technocratic world where everything is so arcane that there's yeah. none of us know. I mean, there are people who have devoted their entire lives and are in their 70s and 80s and, and esteemed in their fields of legal, international, global jurisprudence on all scales, and they can't figure it out. Uh, I have no clue. And, and bearing in mind, because we have a Home Secretary who can't even operate a desk calendar when it came to the, uh, the, the extradition of Abu Hamza. She got, she got the day wrong. So I, I think that's your position. Is I, I think if I were the Home Secretary, I'd be in very serious talks with the BBC about how to pronounce his name. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, it, it, I've heard that at least... I mean, this morning on the Today programme, I had Assange, 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 or so, um, everything. How does he pronounce? He's Australian. He's sort of... I don't... Who, I, I think what would just, you do I, I if you were Home Secretary? <laughs> How would you would pronounce it? Well, like? I mean, is it, is, it's not his choice, is it? I mean, his hands are kind of tied by public opinion. I think he's just going to have to go in there eventually. It looks that way. Mark, would, would you send in the SAS? I know that's absurd. Uh, yes. You really would? <laughs> yeah, but I'd, I'd send it into the Colombian embassy just for fun. <laughs> <laughs> time, uh, time, I think, for some more music now. I, I, can, I have for your... Listening pleasure, a Canadian of Scottish ancestry, which means you're more likely to believe him than if he claimed to be an American of Scottish ancestry, in which case you'd probably sell him something authentic on the Royal Mile. Uh, please welcome a former winner of the Edinburgh Comedy Award, ladies and gentlemen, Phil Nicholl. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Can I just say, I actually am Scottish. It's not even my ancestry. Yeah. I was born in Cumbernauld. Yeah. And I survived it. Yeah. 
I hate stereotypes, by the way, especially when they're true. Stop it. Uh, not gay. Um, I'm, not, I'm not gay, but I'm often being taken by gay. Sorry, as a gay man. Uh, I, I am Canadian. Canadians, Canadians are... Uh, I'm not supposed to like Americans, because Canadians feel about Americans the way the Scottish feel about the English, the way the Welsh feel about themselves. Uh, and I see some Welsh people going one. Um, I, I, I don't want to be an offensive comedian. But it's really hard not to offend these days. Uh, Frankie Boyle is doing it. And Jimmy Carr is doing it. And, uh, and it's so easy to offend large groups of people, you know, like uh, fundamental Islam or women. And uh, I know, I know, I know. And you don't want to mess with those crazy lunatics. So, uh, <laughs> so I've written a song to redress the balance. This song is called You Can't Say That to Me. I was riding on the tube and this chick was being rude She got up in my face with a chavy attitude And as the doors were opening and I got up to leave I called her a loser, she said You can't say that to me cause I'm a gay Black 30-something, one-legged blind German pigeon pole dancer with a tumor And I said, oh, sorry La-la-la-la-la-la-la, yeah I'm standing in the shop and this jerk jumped the queue. I tapped him on the shoulder, said, What you think you're doing? He laughed, he sneered for everyone to see. I called him a prick, he said, You can't say that to me, cause I'm a deaf by Asian teenager albino, Hindu dance instructor with a lisp. And I said, Oh, sorry. I'm walking down the road and I come to a crossing A munchkin in a car thought that I was only Dawson When I went across he didn't stop and nearly hit me I called him a twat and he said you can't say that to me cause I'm a mute Pardon, that's trouble with the world today. You gotta be so careful about everything you say. I should keep my mouth shut, it's a safest bet. If I'm offended, you already, you ain't seen nothing yet. I got home really late, my girlfriend, she was ripen. And I was so annoyed, I couldn't take any more sniping. She flew into a rage and threw a slipper at me. She called me an asshole, I said, You can't say that to me, cause I'm a short cross-eyed braces wearing pimpled ginger virgin. It's mental chap with the limp, yeah Cause I'm a web-fingered, bald, Italian, Chinese, Muslim Not a pisha and really bad breath, yeah Cause I'm a lonely single father With a pin in his hip, ex-army cross-dresser in a turban I'm a single Scottish poet to open TV I'm stupid, I'm fat, and I'm ugly And she's dead <laughs> Yep, yep, oh yeah Phil Nickel, ladies and gentlemen. Phil Nickel. Thank you, Phil. Cheers. Do you know, I, the signer there, you were just um, amazing. It's just astonishing, isn't it? It's absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 somebody throw these poor women a ballad it's, once in a while. I'd have stopped. We, uh, the, the clock is against us. I, I, I want to get through the, 
looming American election and the issue of offence in comedy that Phil just so expertly brought, brought to our attention. <laughs> that's, that's sort of a bit of a crunching gear change. I was also wondering if anyone's going anywhere nice on holiday this year after the festival. So I, I, I don't understand how you can go on holiday after the festival. I'm going on a make-my-rent holiday, like to the streets, <laughs> as soon as I get out of here. The, uh, well, we'll see. Wait for that question, will you please, Dana? I've, I've, got, I've got the American election and the fencing comedy to get, to get through first. The, and um, four minutes. Yes. Although you can kick us off on the question of offence. Does, does anything go? I, uh, he mentioned Frankie Boyle. We're getting increasing, oddly, for the 21st It's all about century. context, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, you could say two different things said in a different context. Like, you could even take the word, uh, can I, am I allowed to say it on an air, nigger, for example. If a black person says it, it's a, a completely different thing than if someone says it directed at a black person. So it's, it's really about context. I Oprah think. would disagree with you. I, I don't remember she, that. I disagree with Oprah on a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this, this doesn't surprise me. But and if you look under your seat. Context, it's a broad church, Mark. What's the difference between what Phil just sang, that very witty sort of litany of cliches to describe someone who is in need of protection by society and when Richard Littlejohn does exactly the same sort of cliches in his column talking about perhaps a one-eyed lesbian Somalian asylum Because he hates seeker. people. Richard Littlejohn actually genuinely hates people and he is a master of hate speech and publicly he should be strung out and horsewhipped. <laughs> well, that, that sure but, but can I like... just say in a human rightsy way? Yeah, yes. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you clarified. No, that. No, it's very simple. Like offences, uh, uh, I take the point entirely about hate speech, but there's also a bit where you have to sort of go. You know, someone like uh, you know Frankie Boyle is entitled to say whatever he wants to say as a comic. Freedom of speech is very important, and he's got a right to say what he wants to say. Equally, I've got a right to call him a cunt. It's as simple as that. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, but the, I think the more it happens, the more people are starting to realise that that you know it, it's it is context and and. You know what the real the real issue for me is that it's such a distraction and it gives people this false sense of accomplishment to feel like they've actually contributed to uh, you know civil rights or to the respect of others by you know harumphing and making an issue of walking out on a comedian in some you know some Friday night gig somewhere and holding their heads up high as if they accomplished anything and that's really just a distraction because there are still institutional aspects to all of this the legal systems are corrupt there's 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 violence there's 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 social policy that can be addressed that actually makes a difference. And I think that a lot of this discourse about what a comedian said makes people feel like they've done something because they walked out on a comic when things remain and become you know, increasingly ignored. Is it, could, it, could it be a bit more optimistic and just suggest that it's a sort of entry-level concern about what's going on in society rather than criticising people for not being concerned about the big stuff? You could see it as a sort of a gateway, it, uh, the, the cannabis of social concern that leads on to the hard-hitting political because issues. Are you suggesting through that, through that chain of logic a oh. revolution starts with someone going... That, that is what Tom Daly told me. I... I that, <laughs> Well, you know, it deflects. It, you know, all of a sudden taking it out on entertainers, uh, it, it just gives the government, it gives the powers that be, it gives the institutions who are really you responsible cover. You can't have it both ways. I, Ian Rankin, you mentioned the, the Turkish writer who likes to mm. be on the threshold of things. We've talked at length about Pussy Riot. They are mere artists. So if they're allowed to make mere. meaningful <laughs> comment, why can they not be criticised for making... Well, I mean, I, I think there's... I mean, I've got a, a son with, with 
severe special needs. And um, when someone who's in the public eye and has looked up to a, a comedian starts using the word mong, um, then suddenly, five minutes later, it's in the classroom. It's, mm. in, it's in the playground. Yeah. And we've spent decades trying to get handicapped kids accepted in mainstream education and in towns and cities and shopping centres and everywhere else. When I was a kid, you never used to see them. They were locked away. We've yes. gone through a process now, and you've got a shopping centre, and they're having days out, they're doing everything that we're doing. And then suddenly, that happens, and bang, we've gone back 20, 30, 40 years. Well, they, did the same thing happen with the South Park yeah. incident? There's, there is a great deal of truth in that. There's a great deal of truth in that, and I am, I am compassionate towards that. But it is important to note that you rarely hear anybody calling among somebody who is actually you know, gener generally the um, um, target of that insult. Yeah, it it, no, you don't, you, you don't, you do not, you do not hear people standing up and calling black people the N-word. You do not hear, that's not the prevailing way of life. We what you hear is people calling people... have experience about this? We, we call people mong who are... It's, it's, like, it's like calling somebody an idiot. It's not, it's it's not directly... I'd, I'd feel it. It's, it's on, dismissive, though. I think it's, it's dismissive. I just think it's an important distinction. I'm not, I don't have any right or wrong on this. I just think it is an important distinction. Because yeah, the alternative is to outlaw a word. Exactly. Exactly. So it's important to see these these distinctions. It's not you do not. It is not socially acceptable to go around and use that word to people for whom it's a real it's a real insult and has a history of being an insult. That's so, not like, how I, it's used. That's not how Ricky Gervais used it. So would you agree with like two white kids that think they're black calling each other nigger? Well, you know it's interesting because in Los Angeles you see Latinos and Asians and blacks and whites all calling each other nigger. So I apparently I have no answer. <laughs> I, 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 I did hear two white Welshmen on the London Underground yeah. with that, that Newport accent, which lends itself to calling each other that. And it was funny. <laughs> Just say it, say it! Is it acceptable to sing the word in your car if it's in the lyric of half the album you're listening to? That's a tricky one. It, that is it, a tricky one. Ian, Forgive me, but as a writer, I presume you'd balk at the notion of criminalising a, a word, a succession of letters. No, no, I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, of course, I'm not going to go that far. What I'm saying is that I would have hoped that we would have educated people. We would have educated people to the extent they would feel that that wasn't, uh, you know, it's a, it, it, that they don't need to and say that. They don't need to use that, and it's not a source of humour. But saying that is like saying to a writer, you can't use hyperbole. Or you can't play on irony. Is it? Yes, it but, is. Absolutely. But but there, you know, Absolutely there, it is. But when you introduce, like, I mean, when you introduce certain things, for example, I'm going to use the example of uh, South Park with the whole kick a ginger day. Yes. Like, as a Canadian, a ginger wasn't something that even occurred to me or existed. But because it was introduced by this mainstream show, all of a sudden these kids are getting bullied all over the United oh, States and Canada. So, I mean, it is something that you have to think about. No, it isn't something you have to think about. It's something you have to think about. It's the as an artist, you cannot... Sorry, you cannot Paul, are you be held responsible not for the recipient's interpretation. <laughs> are, you, are, you are you advocating not thinking? <laughs> if you want to get anywhere Shall in this we, business... What a, what, a, what, a, what a perfect moment as we advocate non-thinking to turn our attention briefly to the American election. <laughs> if Paul, you want to get anywhere in that business... Let, 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 briefly, I just provide us on this side of the Atlantic with, with a sort of thumbnail sketch of, of where you think the country is with regard to Obama's potential continued residence in the White House. I have, I have no idea, except it doesn't really matter. It's not like the election is going to matter. Really? Yeah, they don't really matter. 
That's all? It's just a puppet show. We exactly. all know that. Just two little lines right here. Yeah. You can't, that won't translate. Dude, America, America, with, uh, <laughs> <laughs> America with Romney at the helm would surely feel a little different to America. We would all be wearing magic underwear. <laughs> this is a Mormon belief, is it? Or yes. satire? Yes, it is. It is no, actually, it's a actually a Mormon it's, belief. It's, it's hard to... Which, of course, is a religion that was uh, started by a convicted uh, fraud. Stir. And yes. I think I think Romney also has a little bit of a reputation for flip-flopping on a lot of issues, like uh, pro-choice, for example. He's It's clearly... <laughs> Paying tax. Exactly, yeah. He's, he's back and forth on a lot of things. I mean, what does he stand for? Well, if, if you two can't tell us, we're, we're buggered, frankly. <laughs> <In other> words, <laughs> what do you know? Do, do, you, do, we know? do we really know any specifics of yeah. policy? Obama's, Obama's Obama going to be nice to hold people and let them live a little bit longer, yeah. and Romney's going to eat them. Well, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> The yeah. Medicare That's bill, news the Medicare bill that went through, you can say there's no difference, but the Medicare bill that went through will give medical treatment to thousands of people without money, and that is really important. And if it you're in that position, then that's a significant thing. It is important, but even those who come from the same end of the spectrum as you are on this feel that it is actually more destructive because what we've done is we've, we've basically corporatized that's essentially what's happening. And if you know anything about a legislative inertia, you know that that is going to be a system that's in place that, that is, is just a recipe for corruption and a recipe for uh, um, uh, greater harm in the bigger picture. Sorry. It's just a bad, it's a bad system. I'm all for health care in the United States. But, you know, single payer was an interesting concept. All those other aspects, what we, the system we have now is just a bad, that, that ruling is terrible. That leg, piece of legislation so is terrible. So you don't terrible. think that actually... In my help. opinion. It, will, it won't. So people with low, low income... It will help some. It will help some. It will help some. But as you know, it's a long game. And to, to do a piece of legislation that is as corrupt as that piece of legislation, you entrench it. And, and you, we're going to end up in a worse but situation than said, if we actually said, held out said, for no, a healthcare system that worked. It will help some. It will and help some. That makes no difference. So yeah, how can you it, hold those two positions? Because, because Am I not for the greater good, for the greater good, a better piece of legislation would have been more significant for the greater good, and it would have happened further down the line. But it would have helped many, many, many more people. As opposed to some. As it opposed is, to some. Is, okay. is anyone? Going anywhere nice for their holidays this year? You know, I'm I thought it was Can- really interesting. With I'm going to Canada. They got free health care. <laughs> back, to, back to the, I guess this kind of ties in with the medical issue, but there are actually busloads of uh, senior citizen pensioner Americans that have to cross the border into Canada just to get affordable medication. So, that, well, you know, there, there are women in uh, Northern Ireland who have to come across the water to, to get, get abortions. Abortion. Yeah. Uh, Ian, do you see the American election as a meaningless sideshow, or do you, like me, naively consider it to be significant? Um, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm going to Cromarty for my holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and, and on that bombshell, <laughs> before, uh, before we call the close to proceedings this afternoon, I wonder if, you'd, um, if I could ask you to join in a text action for Burmese human rights activist and political prisoner, Umint I. Provided you are 14 years or over, all you need to do is get out your phones at this point, uh, which is going to sound great on the Is podcast. this going to show up like it's a five-pound charge on my T-Mobile? I, no one's actually told me how much it costs. <laughs> but it's Amnesty International. What sort of a heartless bitch are you? <laughs> <laughs> a broke one. A broke one. She's a prisoner of O2. Uh, I, I don't know how much it costs. This isn't going to... Peanuts. 
Provided you are 14 or over, all you need to do is get out your phone, turn them on, and text this message to this number on the screen behind me. There you go. Free- Freedom 9 to double eight zero eight zero. Just to add your voice to the campaign to call for the release. It's a petition. It's free. Come on, Dana. Get I'll your phone I'll do it. Out. I'll Jesus. do it. I just, my phone bill tripled, and I'm getting, the British are tricking me with no, the phone bills. It, it is in the classic and... and Proud tradition of Amnesty International. It is an issue of strength in numbers and voices being heard. So make sure yours is by uh, texting your Freedom 9 followed by your full name to that number to add your voice to the campaign to call for the release of all the remaining political prisoners in Burma. And uh, oddly, we met one at the last outing of No Pressure to be funny. Zarganar, a truly incredible man who, and I kid you not, was sent to jail for owning a DVD of Rambo 3. But there are some quite unfair sentences handed down in Burma as well. I think making Rambo 3 should be an actionable. It's a capital, a capital offence. So now please join me in thanking all our guests who have, I should add, uh, given their time for free this afternoon, although I've waited until precisely now to tell them that. <laughs> ladies, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Provenza, Mark Thomas... Dana Alexander and Ian Rankin. Our musical contributors, Phil Nicol, Loretta Main, Steve Gribbin, Alistair Barry, of course, Nick Revel, and uh, not least, all the technical staff here at the EICC and our fantastic signers who put us all to shame. My name is James O'Brien. This has been No Pressure to Be Funny. Thank you so much and good afternoon. <laughs>